Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Dr. Tammy Berry is sober almost 10 years now, and her story of sobriety and preceded by her story of addiction is absolutely amazing. Here's somebody who goes to school for pretty much most of all her life, is practicing medicine, becomes addicted to speed, uh, always had the alcoholism, and she bottoms out. I mean, craters in dramatic fashion. What's she doing with her life now? She's giving back. She's a resilience expert and coach. She's very involved in the field of recovery. I met Tammy by going to outside of Philadelphia. She was always at this meeting I went to, and uh, she was really cool, and she was going through some serious legal stuff at the time, and she was going to meetings every day and sharing about it. And she said when she had to go to court, over 50% of the courtroom, members of the 12-step community. Tammy Berry is awesome. She's a friend of mine. Uh, She's cool, and... uh, She's got some tools you can use if you're struggling with stress and anxiety, right? Some of us feed off of that. Uh, I know myself included sometimes. So let's get right to Tammy. But before Tammy, somebody who never has any stress, this guy is California cool, and he's my big bro, Kevin Souza. Hey, Tammy. How are you? Good. Uh, by the way, it's nice to spend the morning with you once again. We used to meet almost every day at 7, 7 a.m. at 562 in Haverford. That's right. Yeah. That's right. I miss that place. I've been doing the Zoom thing, but I've, I've been there only a few times since, you know, the era of COVID. Yeah, I miss that place been. a lot, too. I mean, just being out of town. By the way, so Mike is a producer. Say hi, Mike. Um, so that's Hi, Mike. Mike. I actually did listen to a few. Real, a few. And, All right. Yeah, yeah. Make well, sure you, you subscribe know, I, and download, Tammy. Come on now. It's not playing any games. Here. All right, all right. I've always been a fan of you, man. You know, like it's been a ple- you know, it's, it was a pleasure getting to know you through the 562 group. And, you know, this is this is such a good fit for you because your sobriety is so strong. And you just naturally, I think, help people carry the message. You know, I just think this is a great spot for you to be of service. And I'm just happy to be a small part of it. I appreciate you saying that. And, you know, that I think that I literally, I mean, I can't, you could leave me on the side of the road with the car and I'm not, I don't know that I'm changing the flat tire, but I can communicate. Uh, And I feel like it's, I feel like it's my, like God gave me, he spared my life. So this is, this is what I like, this is what I do, you know, like while I'm, while I'm on the other side, I don't know how strong I, you know, it's day to day, just like everybody else, but I appreciate, of course. I appreciate you saying that. So what are you up to now? I want to kind of find out what you're up to now. Cause I'm just naturally curious and then we'll get into your story. Yeah. Right now I train people, help people actually train their nervous system. So that they can really master stress in their lives. 
and transform it into fuel for living their best. And really, it was a byproduct of my recovery, to be honest, because I didn't realize, yes, I was addicted to alcohol, and yes, I was addicted to Adderall, and a whole host of other things that release dopamine, like shopping and gambling, you know, like I'm a multifaceted addict, so to speak. <laughs> and uh, I didn't realize that, at, you know, until I got into really solid recovery, I didn't realize that really actually one of my strongest addictions was my addiction to stress. Yeah. And, and as I started doing some of that deeper work, I realized, wow, this is so pervasive in my life and then I and then I started to realize how pervasive this is really like in America and, and the Western world. And it became one of these things where it was like, wow, okay, so I started studying it and researching it and understanding it and understanding what it does to the brain, what it does to the nervous system, how it affects the body and our behaviors and our choices. And I realized, wow, we are all prisoners of this. And Really, it was a selfish endeavor, I'm going to be honest, Um, because I wanted to live, you know, I am fiercely committed to the journey to the liberation from the bondage of self. And I only knew that that was a thing from coming to AA, Yeah, you know, like I didn't even know that I was a prisoner. Uh, we'll we'll, no. we'll get into this yeah. this thing what you're doing now as we we'll weave it throughout yeah, your yeah. story. But I do want to ask you. Yeah. I mean, and I'm not asking for you to you know give it all away. But what's the number one thing somebody can do to convert that anxiety and that stress uh, and use it as a force for good in their life? So really, there's there's sort of three phases. But the first phase is rebalancing your nervous system. And that can come from a myriad of ways. I mean, Alcoholics Anonymous teaches us prayer and meditation, right? That is a really powerful way to balance your nervous system, to reduce the sympathetic system and increase the parasympathetic system. So they work in tandem or they work in, they counteract one another, essentially. And when we're in a a sympathetic response, we're in stress. And when we're in a parasympathetic response, we're countering all of that biochemically, hormonally, physiologically, neurobiochemically, like in every area of the brain and the body. And so anytime you are praying or meditating and you feel relief, you know that you've activated the parasympathetic nervous system. Mm. And I give my clients biofeedback monitoring so they know in real time that they're actually strengthening their parasympathetic nervous system. So, you know, a lot of the clients I work with, they, they want to know that they're doing it right. Um, they're kind of like me, the type A perfectionist, you <laughs> yeah, know, yeah. Well, not you, in the cycle of overachieving, you know. You were, a, were you or are you, you, you were a, a doctor, right? Yeah, a surgeon, actually, yeah. What kind of surgeon? General. Okay, so you were a general surgeon. Let's go back to the very yeah. beginning. When did you have your first drink? My first drink, um, I was in high school. It was a party. Apparently, everybody else knew how to do this. <laughs> <laughs> I ended up vomiting everywhere, you know, like, <laughs> I, uh, um, 
I was never a successful drinker, like from the jump. And for whatever reason, I thought this was my solution. But uh, clearly, it never agreed with me. I never knew how to moderate. I mean, from the moment that I first started drinking, I felt euphoria. I felt relief from the anxiety, the stress, the sort of inner turmoil that I had been carrying for years that I didn't know. I didn't have a name for it. I didn't have language for it. But I certainly knew at the time that there was relief in the drink from it. And if it ended up with me vomiting and making a fool of myself, I, um, it, it, it didn't matter. Yeah, the, that, that, that's, yeah. and that's that alcoholic stuff that we don't notice going up, growing up. You know, yeah, like I drank, you know, and people would draw all over me in high school, you know, when I was passed out. And, and I didn't like, maybe I carried the shame underneath, but I didn't care. Uh, it was mm-hmm. like, hey, when when are we going to do this again? Because it makes me, it makes me feel good. It sets off something in my brain that is freeing and 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 gives me confidence. So, were you? What was the balancing act like for you, as you drank, uh, but evolved as a student? Like, how did you how did you manage both? Yeah, I I almost just have to admit that like school always just came easy to me. Um, academic and that sort of was you know ultimately how I got away with a lot um because you were just always smarter than everybody else I mean I'll say it or or it seemed like that it just seems easy to me you know yeah it was and then I got into medical school and and it was like oh my gosh I've like done this before and then I got into the operating room I started doing like my clinical rotations and I just thought this was the coolest thing and I could make my way through an abdomen like nobody's. It was as if I had done this before. It was a really strange experience. Um, I just had a, it was as if I was born with a skill set that other people had to work really hard to learn and master. And I sort of was given it in, in a way. Where did and, you, where did you go? Did you grow up in Minnesota? I did. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, see, I remember that. I yeah. So you grew up in Minnesota. So. You you go to high school there, and then where do you go to college? The University of Wisconsin. Oh, okay, okay. So you go to the that, that's a pretty big drinking school. Yeah. Well, every year I <laughs> Madison. Was there, uh, we were the number one party school in America, and then I graduated and it went to Florida State University, and I thought, <laughs> oh, look at that! See, it was me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> If they had just hung on to me a little longer, they could have kept their standing, you know? So you went to Florida yeah. State. Did you go there for, for med school or for? Oh, no, no. I didn't go to Florida State, but they won the number one. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Okay. And so I thought, oh, see, should have, you know, could have kept your ranking. <laughs> so, you go, so you go to med school where? I went to Ross University. I decided pretty late in the game. I was starting to actually teach. I went to graduate school at the University of Wisconsin, I was studying Lyme disease and looking at the inflammatory process, which, you know, now comes full circle. I realized stress is the greatest activator of the inflammatory process in the body. Um, But at the time I was studying, you know, immune mediators, really technical stuff. But um, during that time, I was a teaching assistant and I was teaching at the medical school at the University of Wisconsin. I was was a teaching assistant for physiology. And I thought, this is so cool. If I'm teaching med students, maybe I should go to medical school. These <laughs> guys seem cool. Yeah. And um, 
started reaching out to some of the academics there and, and found out basically like I didn't have a chance of getting in there because I had partied enough that my GPA wasn't really stellar. And University of Wisconsin was a top top 15 medical school in the country at the time. And this was in 2001. And um, so I, I was like, oh gosh, no, but I really want to do this. I, so I ended up going to a foreign medical school. Ross University is in the Caribbean. It's kind of moved around a little bit, but at the time it was in, a, in an island in a country called Dominica. Wow. And, uh, and, I, and I applied and I got in and, and really... I mean, like, oh, talk about a culture shock and a and a totally new life. And and it's interesting because I still had willpower then. I I really wanted to immerse myself in the study of medicine, and I loved it. And my drinking was more of a binge. You know, it was like it would be after midterms, after exams, I would let myself go off the rails for sometimes several days. I would sometimes take myself to a different island so that my colleague, you know, my fellow medical students wouldn't see me uh-huh. like the hot mess that I would be. Um, so at that point, you know, if you drink, you know, like they talk about in the big book, like the phenomenon of cravings going to kick in and you have one or two drinks and you're, you're off. It's a binge drink. Oh, and, I'm gone. Yeah. Baby. Oh yeah. And I don't know if I'm going to be back in 24 hours or three days. Right? Like, I don't know. <laughs> What's the Adderall once situation I, like start, in college and yeah, med school? Well, you know, I didn't, I, I, I played with it just a couple times in undergrad. Um, it wasn't until I really hit the crush. It, you know, the Adderall didn't kick in until I was um, a surgeon, okay. actually. So, but I had, you know, my body remembered, like, that euphoria. And at that time, so I go through med school. I do all of that. Let me just like yeah, sure, sure, segue sure. here. I'm all over so the place. So I, 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 I totally loved the, the med school thing. I was able to do my binge drinking and get by really well. Graduate with a 4.0, highest honors. He, you know, taught my way through it. Uh, end up in Florida, like Miami for some rotation. End up teaching a little bit, teaching other medical students in in Miami for a little bit, end up then in New York uh, to finish my clinicals um, through Mount Sinai and Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn. And then the drinking really started. I, I mean, the really what it is is like my underlying depression and discontent with life is kicking in, right? Like my irritable restless discontent is kicking in. I don't know what this is. I just know that I need to numb out, yeah. right? Like I, I can't deal with these feelings. So I start drinking a lot more. I realize I'm in a culture that actually does a pretty good amount of drinking, yeah. you know, like apparently doctors, um, there's a few of them. I think you're like the third like doctor me. we've had on here. Uh, yeah, and it's and and there's many more out there. There's so many more, Pete. Oh my gosh! I just posted on LinkedIn yesterday about my alcoholism and my drug addiction and my fail. You know, my burnout as a surgeon, and you wouldn't believe the response I've been getting from people privately, uh, physicians, surgeons, exec, healthcare executives. You know, this is the I'm learning that. This is the dark, you know, this is the dark secret. What do you think it is? Right now. 
I think that people feel trapped in a system that's very oppressive and demands a lot of them without supporting them as human beings. And I think whenever we're in a position where we feel helpless or hopeless, I mean, that's how I came into AA, man, helpless and hopeless. And, and I was restored to sanity, right? But when you feel helpless and hopeless and you don't see a way out, you, you almost have to numb out. You don't know that you're choosing self-destruction. You think you're choosing self-preservation mm-hmm. in a system that will not adapt to your needs. But really what you're doing is you're signing off on a path of self-destruction that luckily some of us can come back from. Yeah, you, you mentioned that, like this, the self-destruction. That, that's, I love when you say, you know, you don't know what these feelings are, right? But it's, mm-hmm. it, they're there. And, you know, I was numbing out before I knew that I needed to numb out or, and I, and I, it was self-preservation, but I thought it was fun and it was, some of it was, was real fun, but you know, some of it m- most, if not, you know, all, especially by the end was, was a complete mess. But I mean, and I'm not a doctor, I'm not a med student, but there's, there's that coping um, of whatever your situation is, but the, the stakes get so high when you're a doctor, because how long did you go to school? I mean, my whole life. Yeah. <laughs> I feel, and I feel like I'm back in school now because now I'm learning a whole new way to live. Truly. Like every day I'm learning. Um, and this is a great example, by the way, Tammy, school, of, of you know? somebody yeah. who like, it's so hard to change your actions. It's so hard to change what you're doing. Mm. No matter if it's an esteemable thing, like being a doctor or no matter if it's, uh, you know, an unesteemable thing, like, you know, air quotes, unesteemable, like being an alcoholic, like, you know, you've got, I don't know, almost 20 years in the game, educationally invested in, in, in being in the medical field. And then you, you switch gears. Mm-hmm. All right, well, let's go back. Let's go back. Yeah. Uh, let's go back. Cause I'm all over yeah. the place. All right. Take me back. We're in New York and stuff's kind of getting off the rails. Yeah. Stuff's getting off the rails. I, I ended up applying for my general surgery residency at that time. Um, end up getting my number one spot, which is what brought me here to Philadelphia. Um, and that's when I, you know, I started to really realize, you know, I was able to put the drink down for like the first two years of my general surgery training because I was working a hundred hours a week. Where were you? There was no time for it. You know, it was yeah. like, you know, I, I really do want to commit to this. I'm really doing this. And then I kept telling myself with every passing year that it was going to get better. It was going to get easier. It was going to get better. And this was sort of the fruit that gets dangled in front of, I think, physicians is like, hang in there. You're you're going to grind it out, but it'll get better. But I don't think that that's the reality anymore. I, I just think healthcare has become big business and it doesn't get better. And finally, I was in my third year of residency, and I was starting to feel helpless and hopeless. And that's when I started, I started picking up the drink. That's when I started realizing that I was really tired the next day. And so polypharmacy kicked in, you know, Adderall's a wonderful stimulant, you know, and certainly the drug company, you know. Adderall got its name because they were trying to trying to market it that ADD is for all, you know, like everybody has ADD, yeah. you know, Adderall for everyone. I didn't and, know um, that. That's that's interesting. Yeah, right. You know. So were you where where were you working in Philly? 
So at this point, I'm at um, I'm at Mainline Health. Okay. At this point, so I'm working at Lincoln Arm Medical Center. Sure. Um, and that's where they have their residency. We, it's it's a great you know um, you know community academic setting. Partners with the University of Pennsylvania, Jefferson Health System. So there's like some good training opportunities. You know, you end up doing some really cool things, seeing some really cool things. Um, and are you like, by the then, way, so you're you're a surgeon. Yeah. Are you ever like, I can't believe, you know, you're a resident, but like, are, are you like, I, I can't believe what I'm doing with my life? Is there any appreciation or gratitude for what you've accomplished in life? such a good question Pete because I think at the time it none of it was good enough you know like I I learned later on that my pursuit of doing these things like okay going to medical school okay that's the next like I was always looking for what's the next hardest thing I could do um you know it's not really popular for women to when I was um, when I entered surgery, it wasn't really, you know, there weren't very many females doing that. It was like the guys club. And, you know, I was going to be different. I was going to, was going to be the woman that could hang with the boys. And that drive of always trying to do the next hardest thing, I think really came from a deep seated sense of not being good enough and trying to justify or, validate one's own existence and when you try to do that outside of yourself um you always lose like you, you can't win that game you know yeah it's got to come so, internally you mentioned being a woman in totally. a, you know in, in in a guy's club how often when people saw you in scrubs did they think you were a nurse as opposed to a doctor <laughs> very frequently <laughs> <laughs> and i never minded I really, I actually never minded it. I was like, you know, hey, not my business, you know, totally cool with me. I respect the nurses I worked with. Those nurses, you know, the nurses I worked with, they were smart. They were intelligent. They worked hard. They had big hearts. I had no problem being mistaken for one of them. Yeah. Really, truly. <laughs> yeah. So so what happens with, like, the Adderall? Like, how, how does that start to, Does is that something where, you're looking for, you use that during the day and then the alcohol at night and then it both just comes together. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, really the story gets, gets uh, you know, pretty dark fast. I was getting it from my primary care physician at the time. And before I knew it, it was, that had kicked into something else within like, I don't know, eight months of using it. And, she was going to take me off of it. Cause at this point, when I go in for my follow-up with her, my heart rate is up, my blood pressure is up, you know, like these are side effects of amphetamines that show like you're taking too much. Yeah. So <laughs> right? were you, were you taking other, like, were you taking other amphetamines too? No, this okay. was prescribed, but I had gotten her to like not, not, you know, knock it up a lot. And it was, I was taking a pretty high dose yeah. just from her. And then I started, because I knew she wasn't going to keep giving it to me, I started self-prescribing. Oh, so that you, would, really you would write your own, like, prescriptions? Yeah. 
not good behavior. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not no. a good choice. But addict, but but addict behavior. I mean, you basically just addict behavior. You've got a better you know toolbox as far as that stuff is concerned mm-hmm. than the average mm-hmm. addict. And I think a lot of times people are like, oh, they just have a hard time conceiving the fact that doctors would break the law or the police officers would break the law. It's kind of how we're raised. And and for the most part, right, doctors and police officers are, are great. But some of them struggle with mental mental health and, and addiction just like the mm-hmm. rest of the world. Right. Right. And, we, and they need resources. They deserve resources, you know. And so you didn't it's have any resources. I like to share my story. Then. Yeah. You know, I don't have any resources. At this point, I have like no tools for living life, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> All I know is that I'm in pain, and we are biologically wired. Human beings are biologically wired to avoid pain at all costs. This is the human condition. Man, like, I'm no different than anybody else. I just had access to things that other people didn't have access to. That's the way I see it, you know? And I, as unethical as it was, and I had all, you know, I had prided myself on being a really amazing physician and a highly skilled surgeon and somebody who was at the top of their game all the time. So when this fall from grace came, because there was a major fall from grace here, it was devastating to me. You know, so I'm writing myself prescriptions. I'm paying cash for these now because the insurance won't even pay for these with how frequently they're coming out. Right. And it gets to the point where my whole personality changes. Yeah. Pete, I'm tr- I've turned into like, I am hard on my team. I am riding people really hard. At this point, I'm, I'm practicing. I have a team around me that I'm working with, you know, pretty frequently and nobody can stand working with me. The people think point. you're, the people think you're a monster. Yeah. Like I had gone from this really amazing person to work with, like people loving it when I was on call because things would get taken care of and such, 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 to being like, avoid her at all costs, you know? Yeah. And, and, and that wasn't me. Right. You know, like, I, I mean, it was clearly that lived inside of me. Um, but I turned into somebody I really, you know, it amazes me that that person even exists in me. To be totally honest with you. Well, it's a sick. Um, it's a, it's a sick person. It's it's an illness, it's and a sick person. you know, I was very very sick. Now, you know, people say, "Hey, well, you got sober and, and everything. You know, everything's okay now with everybody. You make amends." It's like, no, dude. Like, I got to go turn mm-hmm. myself in down in North Carolina because I <laughs> I didn't take care of a DUI. Like, the consequences stick with us. But, but yeah, uh, you, you, oh you, man, do yeah. they ever? Yeah, as, as so your story dictates. Yeah, so tell me. This part's gonna blow your mind. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it ends up like getting brought to the you know like the head of the hospital, right? They're like, I have multiple interventions for my unruly behavior, and like you're saying, behavior changes hard. Well, it's impossible when you're under the influence. And even when you get sober, you need a balanced nervous system to make any changes. Like, that's absolutely a requirement. Um, and so at this point, I get sort of caught. I take this, they have me pee in a cup finally after multiple attempts to get me to behave myself. And I'm just not playing along. I'm not being a good doctor. I'm, quote, unquote, the disruptive physician. And, um, and I fail the, the drug test. And then it comes out. Like I've been self-prescribing. I have a problem. How did you get I'm fired caught immediately? I'm, I'm fired. Well, they had me, um, they had, they drug tested me 
I mean, but how'd you get caught with the self-prescribing? Oh, I, I told, you know, the jig was, I had been trying to quit Pete at this point. I had been trying to quit on my own for months. I couldn't, I could not kick this thing. Like I would wake up in the morning and pledge to myself that I was done with this. I was never going to do this again. And by 11 a.m. or noon, if I hadn't had myself completely convinced that this was the only way I was going to get through the day. I mean, it was such a vicious cycle. Like since I got sober, I haven't relapsed, but I'm, but I relapsed every day for like eight or nine months before I finally got sober, you know? Yeah. So you get, I would wake up totally committed and, and loot and not have the willpower to get through the morning, which is such, you know, a shit show in, in, internally uh, and emotionally yeah. because there's shame in that, that you're like, Oh man, mm. like I really like so much shame. I really did want to stop and I can't. It's like, oh. I really did. And every time I wrote a prescription, like my hand would be shaking and I would be like, I know this isn't right, but I need this. The, the, like the, I don't, Let's you know. let's do a little inside baseball here. I'm just curious. So you have a license. Mm-hmm. You are a, a doctor. You go to, um, let's say, I'm just going to make stuff up, CVS, and you pick up this prescription. Don't they ask you for your license so they can see that you're prescribing it for yourself? For yourself, or how, it doesn't matter. Well, I would go to these like mom and pop pharmacies. Gotcha. You know, like I kind of, yeah. yeah. I kind of, you know, you're an like, addict I was for sure. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Where there's a will, there's a way, my friend. Yeah. So okay. So you um, get you get caught with that, and what happens? So I get caught with that, yeah. and I just spill the beans. Like I have no, I don't realize that I should be consulting a lawyer. I don't real like I don't realize the ramifications of what I've been doing. I had thought multiple times that I should leave a note like in my shirt, like if you find me, shock me. <laughs> like I'm. For real, like I knew, like I knew I was going to need a defibrillation or something. Like I would, you know, I was going in and out of arrhythmias. This is how much Adderall I was taking. I had totally wrecked my the electrical circuitry of my heart. How much? How much a day? On the rest of my body. Are we taking? You think? Oh man, it's a lot. It's a lot. Actually, when when the when everything went down, so when everything goes down. I mean, I end up in front of a judge, right? When everything goes down, I get prosecuted actually by Kathleen Kane. Oh, that's... So at that time was the attorney general yeah. of Pennsylvania, who's since been indicted yeah. and in prison yeah. for abuse of power. Yeah. And physician had ever been charged. Under no, which I'm, I lost for a second. You said no physician had ever been yeah. charged? Okay. No physician had ever been charged, up till my case, no physician had ever been charged under this particular law that John Corbett at the time was the acting governor. I find out in retrospect, he's investigating Kathleen Kane for abuse of power. In order to get him off her back, she's, I guess, has this idea that, oh, I'm going to, the next physician that comes in line is, I'm going to slap them with this statute. And it'll appease Corbett, he'll back off of me, and everything will be copacetic. I guess I end up being that next position in line. And she sinks her teeth into my case, and the DA will not work with my, I actually go through three lawyers. And you know a lawyer takes a retainer up front to represent you. (laughs) I mean, I blew through, like, oh my gosh, I don't even want, it's like, 
maybe $35,000 on legal fees before I even got in front of a judge. Yeah. Like, no lawyer could work. I thought I was, I, I was like, how do I keep hiring the most incompetent lawyer? <laughs> how is this my, you know, like what kind of luck is this? And, um, sober over a year I'm sober about 14 months by the time I make it this, to this point and that is such a blessing Pete it is such a blessing because what ended up getting me sober was was the when the medical board heard about this they were like you need to go into treatment if you're going to keep your medical license so you weren't so you were sober but you hadn't you hadn't gone to like any kind of recovery is that what I'm getting out of this oh I did okay. I went to rehab Yep, I went to rehab. Well, what's what's your sobriety date? April twenty third, two thousand thirteen. Okay, and that's when oh, the shit hit the fan. That's when I told. That's when I came clean with what was really going on. At that point, I was told to notify the medical board, which I did. I self-reported to the medical board. At that point, they tell me, "Okay, Doctor Barry, we've researched your." case you don't have anything you know like you, you you don't have anything against you it looks like you're very reputable you do great work we're willing to work with you here if you go to rehab and you stay sober and you agree to a daily monitoring like check-in through what's called the php physician's health program that's a racket unto itself <laughs> if you it really is um you pay them $800 a month to monitor you. You have to do everything that they say. I really, I feel for anybody that's in that system. It is, it is tough. And so I play the game, man, because this is all I know, right? I'm yeah. a surgeon. What, what skill set do I have that's translatable to anything outside of what I've trained my whole life to do? So I go into, I go into rehab and they are telling me I have to stop drinking. And I'm like, oh, no, 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 I'm here for the pills. I'm here for the Adderall problem. Yeah. <laughs> I know nothing about alcoholism. I know nothing about cross addiction. I know nothing. And I'm a doctor, right? That's yeah. kind of crazy. Um, and they were going to take my solution away, right? And uh, it was the best thing that ever happened to me, man. And, and I don't think I would have done it if I hadn't done it under the guise of keeping my medical license. Because I didn't love myself enough to choose sobriety. I didn't know the gifts of sobriety. I didn't know what life was going to be like on the other side. I just knew that the only thing at that time that was my solution was the alcohol. And it was all that I had left. What, so, was, what were some of the changes you underwent when you were in treatment? Where'd you go to treatment? I went to a, a physician's uh, recovery thing out in Chicago. Okay. Yeah. And what starts to change when you're there? Well, I stop having, you know, I mean, then I have to work through the cravings and the um, feelings. I cried, man. I was, I didn't know that I had been suppressing and repressing feelings basically my whole life. I cried. I cried every day. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. cried. Oh, I cried. And it's good. I, it's I, it's, I, it's the best. You're you're yeah. crying. I mean, I was big time into Adderall. So like you, you actually rest and sleep um, when you mm -hmm. can, when you're not out of your mind. And like, it's like the deepest sleep you've ever had in your life. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and it's amazing the emotions that come out of us when we're not pouring alcohol and drugs on it. And it's, and it's hard to get through that initial period, which is for me why I needed, 
I needed to go somewhere. I couldn't stop on my own. Mm -hmm. And uh, being inside an institution, you can dress it up any way you want, but being inside an institution was paramount for me um, as far as, you know, getting sober because I I just needed to be away from everything um, and not have any Mm -hmm. options. And I actually spent my birthday in there in rehab. And uh, So were you married at the and time? And that was a gift because I hadn't been sober. I don't remember a sober person. <laughs> like I must have been like, like I, I mean, seriously, I must have been probably like 18 the last time I had a sober person. Were you married then? Married yet? No. No. And I tried to, I warned him. I was like, <laughs> you're going to want to leave me now. Like this is a sinking ship, man. You know, like everything that we've been living, you know, the whole life that we've been living up until this point. And it's amazing how much I hid from him, you know, like he didn't really understand what, what had been going on. Um, and, and I, I really, I, I tried to give him an out, like you can walk away now. And, and that guy, would you believe that he stuck around? Uh, look at, well, look at you around. now. So what starts to change? Yeah. What starts to change when you're in Chicago and, and, and uh, like, in t- what, what starts to work for you as far as sobriety and 12 steps are, are, are concerned? Well, so I go to, the, actually, the first day that I go into rehab, they, they recommend that we go to, you know, AA meetings. And I walk in there, and I was, my whole nervous system responded to that. I walk in the room and I'm settled and I feel like I'm home and I don't even know this place, but I know these are my people. I haven't said a word to anybody yet. And I just know that I'm where I'm supposed to be. I've never had a feeling like that before. And this kind of stocky butch woman stomps up to me and grabs me by the shoulders. And I'm thinking, Oh my God, she's going to throw me out of here. (laughs) Like, she's going to tell me I don't belong here or something or I'm not welcome here. And she gives me a little jostle and she looks like, gets me to look deep in her eyes and she's like, her, her eyes are like penetrating mine. And she just looks at me and she says, we will love you until you learn to love yourself. And she walks away and I'm weeping. I'm cry- I cried that whole meeting because I realized tr- there was truth to that. There was truth to it. I don't, I, and I actually went back to Chicago after I leave there. I come back to Philly. I go back there a year later for like a, a sober conference, you know, mm-hmm. these recovery conferences that they have. And I see her there and I'm so excited to see her because it was such a pivotal moment of my recovery. And she doesn't even recognize me. She has no idea who I am, you know? Yeah, and that's happened like, to me before. You know, this is, this is what it is. We have no idea whose lives we touch in the fellowship, you know, we have no idea who, you know, it's just what taking like two seconds out of your day after a meeting, instead of running out of there, which is what I'll do or sticking around on a zoom and just chatting with somebody that's new or somebody that's going through something. Uh, I know that there are many occasions like that, that, that kept me going. And it it is, that's a great, I love you telling that story because it's a great, little nugget for people and a reminder for people in recovery to go out of your way to be of service, right? Mm-hmm. Our primary purpose is to stay sober and help other alcoholics achieve sobriety. I don't, you know, I, I, I choose to forget that every day until I mm-hmm. decide to remember it um, and get my ass mm-hmm. busy. So you, how does, how does it like, and I've talked to other people about this that are in your profession, but you got a lot of ego being a doctor. Um, and like you, 
have been found out, you're busted. How do you pick up the pieces emotionally and get and get back uh, into mm. the mix professionally and life-wise? Forget you know we can start with life first mm. because everybody knows I'm sure in your circle you, you're the you're the doctor that fell flat on her face. <laughs> right? right? I mean that's yeah. Right, man, you nailed right. The greatest gift that ever came from all of, I mean, truly one of the greatest gifts that has come from all of this is when you're stripped of everything you think you are, you finally discover who you really are. Because I was so connected to these identities of success, prestige, you know, financial security, um, Everything I, everything I thought that I wanted, that I got, wasn't actually what I wanted. And when I was stripped of all of those false identities, I was left with who I really am, which, which truly is a direct extension of divine source. Right? I came to realize that the God I am searching for, I get to be an embodiment of that essence. Yeah, like somebody in the spirit. Happy, joyous, and free is an inherent to the human condition. And that that is who I get to be. I get to know who I really am and be an expression of that when I release everything that blocks me from knowing that. When you see happy, joy, say happy, joyous, and free is what a part of the human condition, what do you mean by that? I mean, we're born that way. I have a three-year-old daughter now. Yes. If I don't tell you this girl is happy, joyous, and free, right? Like, yeah. she is, we are born that way. We are born that way. And it's actually the stress that we accumulate to our lives that dampens our ability to be true expressions of that. And it's like, peel, you know, there's this phrase of like, we peel back the layers of the onion, which is really we shed our shame, we shed our guilt, we release our remorse we we do the work to understand our character defects which really are just our human instincts run riot right so we do all of that work and what we're left with is a being that is truly happy joyous and free we don't come into we don't manufacture happy joyous and free we are it and our work is to release anything and everything that presents us from being true expressions of that and experiencing that in our own lives. And my buddy Scott says, <clears throat> excuse me, this program is about, maybe it's not, I think it is Scott, uh, getting rid of stuff. You know, this is... It's the, 100% getting rid of stuff. Yeah. Ernie, my buddy Ernie says that. This is about AA, about get, you got to get rid of all the bullshit. You got to get rid of it. And, and that enables you to be, have the happy, joyous, and free. And to let the sunlight of the spirit come through you or whatever you want to call it to touch others because that's the deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, the gift of desperation. Oh, that's how I found God. Yeah. Right? That's I would, how I found a you know, life. Yeah. Yeah. And when I was down and out and I wanted to give up, I tried to give up several times. There was something within me that was just rise to the occasion. And I just knew this isn't the end. This isn't the end. This is part of your story, Tammy. This is not your story. This is not 
who you are. And we think that we are our identities. We think we are the things that are around us. We think we are the thing, you know, that our value is based on what's in our bank account or our asset, you know, list. And we are so much bigger than we ever know that we are. Like we are, we are, <laughs> there is so much more to us than we'll ever truly know. And I just want to keep chipping. I just want to keep exploring that and playing in the realm of like, what am I really capable of? And having my daughter has totally lit, like, it has helped me realize if I can bring a fraction of the love that I have for her, for myself, anything is possible for me. We flourish when we are steeped in love and support and care. And that's what AA gave me. Yeah. It's what AA gave me. You know, I walked into that courtroom and half that courtroom was full of people from 562. So, so what, yeah. So I remember now you're going to meetings and you're, you're changing your behavior. You're there every day at 7 a.m. Uh, which I think people, I always have my own little theory on people that go to morning meetings are winners are trying to be winners or trying, you know, you're, you're really mean business because you, you want to get, it's the first priority right before you, mm-hmm. before you embark on your day. And you're really making, you're really making recovery a priority if it's the first thing you do pretty much. Uh, yeah. And because you know, day, days get out of hand, whatever. Um, so I saw you there every day at 7 a.m. What, what's, what's the status of your medical license? You did not have, you were trying to get it back, right? No, I actually wasn't. I've not, I have not tried to get it back. Um, it was, it, it was taken from me because of this felony charge okay. that I had for the writing of the script. And, you know, they thought I was taking so much that I had to be selling it. You know, like there was no way I had survived. Do you, do you know that I had now. the same thing? There was a guy who I used to get Adderall really? from. Oh yeah. And he was like, they were convinced I was selling it. And I was like, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, no, it's really all for me. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Crazy stuff, man. We're so blessed to be alive. Pete. I know. Um, it is, it's, 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 it really is something. And so I, a part of me knew I was never going to have the courage to leave a life in medicine. And I, part of me knew, I've always known that I was meant for more. Not more in an achieving, being, being more way, but that I was meant to have a different impact and, and, and help people in a different way. You know, I really see the work that I do right now is I'm still a healer. You know, I practice a different kind of medicine. Oh, you're on on fire. I'll tell you that right now, just from talking to you. And it's, uh, yeah, you've, you've, you've got it going on. I mean, you have that, you have that attractiveness to your, to your, your sobriety. And, and it's like, you can tell you're, you're in the middle of something really cool. Thanks, no, it's hey, true. You can tell. I get to trudge the road of happy destiny. Yeah. Amazing souls like you, my friend. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you. This uh, is not a solo job. This is, you know, like anything, anything that I do now, I know that I carry, you know, there's this phrase, you know, I see further because I stand on the shoulders of giants, right? And and I stand on the shoulders of, of the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I stand on the shoulders of my ancestors and my lineage. And, you know, like anything that I am is because of everything that has brought me here. And I might not like all of it, 
you know, for the longest time. I didn't like the fact that I was an alcoholic or a drug addict. It's been the greatest blessing in my life. Yeah, it's, a, it's amazing. And that is like almost what you talked about at the beginning, right? T- turning your stress, understanding it and, and using it as mm-hmm. some, some kind of asset. What kind of, but just to go back a little bit, what kind of charges were you facing? <laughs> oh, dang. The list, the list was mighty long. I was, fa- I was facing at the end 28 years in prison. Jeez. And and three hundred and eighty thousand dollars in fines. Yeah. And you're going to meetings every day. I didn't I didn't know that it was that deep. So you're going to meetings every day. Yeah. And you're yeah. that's the beauty of by the way of Alcoholics Anonymous. You can be in the middle of a complete and total shitstorm. But if you're going to meetings every single day, you you know, you you're you're working the steps, you there's God in your life or your higher power. And uh, you can get through just about anything. Oh, you, you can. Can, any, How about anything? You can get through anything, not just about. I always want to sell short. Yeah. Anything. No, you can get through anything. You can get through anything if you're surrounded by love, support. I mean, that's what it comes down to. Did you that's ever have really any mishaps in, in, in the hospital, like when you were working, like performing surgery or anything? Like... Never. Yes, but it's 28 years we're looking at. So what what the hell happens? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I've got physicians there, you know, testifying on my behalf. I've got um, people, t- you know, it, it, was, it was wild. And the judge even says, I don't want to have to do this, you know. But he, because it was being, the case was being driven by Kathleen Kane, like there was no... There was no negotiating here. And he ends up waiving the fine um, because I still have school loans, which are, you know, not quite that high, but rather high, you know? So it's like, I've still, I've already got fines basically to pay. Um, And he puts me on probation for five years, uh, which ended up getting reduced, I guess, to to something like three. and, you know, and that was it. And, and because of the felony charges that went along with that, it was an automatic loss of my medical license for 10 years. Oh, okay. And so we're still two years out from that, you know, for me being able to get it back. Do you think you will try to get it back? That I ever, no. You don't think so? Okay. No, that's not. That, that ship has sailed. I'm on a new ship. Yeah, well, it sounds like it sounds like it. So, talk to me. How did you how did you find yourself here? How did you redirect? Um, you know, is that a spiritual thing too? Because again, and I know this from my own experience, you can have look if you have a little bit of training and some skills, um, you can have absolutely really nothing going for you on paper, but you can go to meetings, get spiritually fit, start to believe in yourself, have self esteem. And completely be just just accomplish or have the balls to try to do anything. And and the next thing you know, you're in the middle of a new project like you are now and you're achieving success. How did you get there? One day at a time. I could have never imagined that this was my life. I could have never you know I always hoped that I was given an opportunity to positively impact people. I always hoped that I would be given an opportunity where I could continue to 
to leverage, you know, the understanding of the human condition, the human body, the human, and, and to help people achieve what's possible in terms of human potential. Because I'm interested in those things, you know? I'm interested in, in radical success that's on my terms. Because when I'm trying to live somebody else's version of success, I'm never actually successful. You know, so I had to do the deeper inner work, which is like, what does success even mean to me? What What is a successful life? What did you come up and with? I had to get really clear on that. And and it was, it was really like having friendships and, and family that I care about, that I'm connected to. Because I had been so distraught. I was a shell of myself, too. Like, I wasn't an actual participant in any of the relationships in my life by the time everything came down. You know, oh, yeah. I want to know myself. I want to be connected to myself. So how do you work with clients today? So today I work with clients who um, have a, an eight week training program right now. My signature course is Stress Mastery Academy. And people come in who are interested, like you were talking about before, like how hard it is to change our behavior, how hard it is to show up as a different person. I have there are three phases to this training program in eight weeks that people learn to rebalance, repattern, and reprogram their nervous system so that they have everything they need to continue to evolve and grow into the best version of themselves. And it's a system that's repeatable over and over. I've used the system to help me in my later stages of recovery when I could finally get my, get my marbles back <laughs> and could understand what had happened to me. Yeah. It takes and, a little while. Um, it takes a little while, but definitely my, you know, my signature program is not for people in early recovery. You know, I'm going to put that out there. This is for people that have been in recovery for at least a year who you know, recognize that maybe stress might be a huge component. But it is for people in recovery, specific to recovery. It's specific to anybody that has, that recognizes that they could have an addictive relationship with stress. That it is creating for them habits of thought, behavior, and action that are not congruent with their greatest good. Do you think the people right? that so have, is, mm-hmm. go ahead, go ahead, it's, go ahead, finish your thought, because that was interesting. Oh no! I was just gonna say, you know, it's, you don't you don't have to be a, an alcoholic or or an addict, uh, you know, an Adderall addict, um, for this system to work. Yeah. Do you think people are kind of a like because when you create the stress, you kind of create like chaos. You know, I've done it myself, and then mm-hmm. you know, you that's kind of like people kind of get a rush off that because when everything stops moving, you're just left with yourself. Mm-hmm. And a lot of time. And biochemically, those are very addictive chemicals and hormones, right? When we are releasing stress, has, releases things like epinephrine and norepinephrine, which are the the natural stimulants of the body, right? So you get that rush, like you're talking about. And then you know, then we're releasing cortisol, which is the stress hormone, and this starts shutting down certain. You know, we don't digest food well we don't it shuts down the way that we think it reduces blood flow to the cortex of your brain um and then the the energetic demand goes to the more central parts of your brain which are always territorial 
selfish. Fear-based. You're in survivor mode. And those circuits end up being self-perpetuating if you don't know how to break the cycle. Right? So it just so keeps going and going. This is why it's such a gift. Oh, it just keeps going and going. You've got to disrupt the cycle if you're going to free yourself from this ongoing cyclical pattern that it, that it creates. What's like the first thing somebody spiral, should do? Yeah, you spiral. What's the first thing somebody should do that's listening to this and is struggling with major anxiety? And, and they're like, wow listening right now and they're like, maybe I'm addicted to it. Maybe, maybe, you know, what do they do? Yeah. Well, the first piece is to recognize when you're caught in it, right? So awareness is the, is the greatest liberator of anything. You want to change anything in your life, you're going to have to develop a little bit of awareness around it. And to do that with kindness is always, uh, you know, I, I like to strongly encourage people that kindness and compassion are always like part of the solution. And so it's like recognizing that you're caught in it and not go and, and not beating yourself up. You're, you know, you do enough of that. Yeah. <laughs> Try something else. Give yourself a break. Recognize like, oh my gosh, I'm carrying a lot here. Right. And just take a few nice deep breaths. See if you can take a deep breath with your belly. Really move your diaphragm. That helps activate the vagus nerve, which is the really strong driver of the parasympathetic nervous system. And just, kind of gain gain some balance just from that and then once you're once you're in balance and this is hard to do you know yeah this can be hard to do because you have to practice it regularly for it to start working quickly but once you train for this you can actually re-regulate your nervous system within 30 seconds we're wired for it you know we were given a parasympathetic nervous system and what's interesting when you're in parasympathetic dominant state you feel connected. You feel like you belong. You feel whole. You feel like, like you can feel things like love and compassion and kindness. You can think smarter. You can make better decisions. You choose better behaviors that are life affirming instead of life destroying. It shows up in your relationship. You can connect to other people because you're connected to yourself. Yeah, totally. You know, we're wired this way. I notice we myself wi- now, you know, like I'm fidgety and stuff. Like I'm not, I'm just, in, you need to get a little more rest. And I, and I've totally gotten away from meditation. And it's, you know, I know that when I, when I find that gear and I find that space, I, uh, I it definitely changes my demeanor and the vibe I give off. I'm sure like I, it's so often now. I'm just constantly, I don't know what, I'm, I'm ready for a pot of gold to spring out of my phone. You know, I'm just like, why am I, why do I continue to look at it? You know, um, uh, you know, and. Uh, oh, Pete, yeah. those are such common behaviors. Yeah. Those are like what you're talking about. We are in America. I think we right now, we have an epidemic of stress. We have an epidemic of stress. We're addicted to our phones, right? That's activating the stress response. We're stressed out in traffic. I hear more horns today on the road than I ever yeah. did before. You're hearing about people getting thrown off of airplanes. Yeah. They're like, you know, a, a lot. A belligerent behavior. Yeah. Like this is a we as a society, did you know that right now nearly twenty five percent of all children aged thirteen to eighteen in America have diagnosable anxiety disorder. And that's that's insane. That is heartbreaking we are you know our kids 
they don't have the ability to self-regulate the way we do. Our children are 100% dependent on our nervous system balance for them to learn how to regulate and balance their own. So this statistic is a sign to me that our, that parents, adults in America right now are experiencing incredible levels of stress and what they're carrying. This is, this is a healthcare crisis. This is like a public health crisis and it's affecting our kids and it's, it will have repercussions that show, I mean, what stress ultimately does is it puts us in a pro-inflammatory state. Inflammation is the root of all disease and cancer. Yeah. It's amazing to think about that. Yeah. Yeah. Like something like stress, something outside of us can internally kill us. You know, not something we're putting in our body. It's not like uh, we're running into something that's going to kill us, or it's uh, it's it's this vibe <laughs> that is that and will it's kill contagious. us. We're emotional beings, right? Emotions are contagious. Stress is a, is really, if you think about it, it's a soup of a, of destructive emotions. Okay, so right? if if somebody wants to find you, where where can they find you? How can they get involved? Um, you know, because yeah, you're, yeah. you're, you're already helping people, but if people want to go deeper than this, how can they, how can they find you? Yeah, you can. I love LinkedIn. If you're on LinkedIn, please follow me, interact with me. Let's, let's have a conversation. Um, we'll put that link if you up. you want to just sort of see what I'm up to, um, drtammyberry.com. It's D-R-C-A-M-I-B-E-R-R-Y.com. All right. Well, and anything else, what do you tell somebody that's just trying to get a day? Keep coming back. Right. Keep coming back. Keep coming, Keep coming back. back. It's like, it's like, and there are no shortage of meetings, right? Like, I, I won't quite keep, you know, you're saying you saw me every day at seven. And then, you know, if we talk to the next guy, you'd be like, oh, yeah, I saw her every day at noon at midday. Yes. <laughs> and then if we spoke to somebody else, they'd be like, oh, yeah, I saw her every day at the 6 p.m. You know, like, I... And so if you're trying to get a day, immerse yourself in recovery. I'm happy you said that. You, you know, I'm happy you said that oh, because yeah, it's one of those deals where it's almost like, you know, I I drank, uh, I smoked weed, then I t- took speed, then I did coke, you know, and then hallucinogens and everything else under the sun. And there's doors you walk through, right? Like normal is is what you're used to, right? Like eventually. It's just mm-hmm. what you're used to. Mm-hmm. And if you can make normal... Because, you know, people are going to be like, there's no way I can go to two meetings a day or, or three. It's like, yeah, you can. If you're mm-hmm. brand new or if you're going through crisis and you've been around for a while and you don't want to sit with yourself, you know, smash the ego and, and just just knock them down meeting after meeting. Now, easier for me to say I haven't done that in a while, but I have done it and I know I felt awesome in doing it there's no better way to kill time if you're if you're an alcoholic looking for something to do because a lot of times people get sober they have the gift of unemployment uh they're not in a relationship because they've blown all that up and you know maybe you're living with your parents or you're in a weird situation get to meetings it's uh i'm really happy you said that because uh it's you know you're somebody who i think after listening to this people will be really impressed by and it's like yeah like it's not like it's not so out of the norm or crazy to go to a couple meetings a day if you have the time and if you have something going on. Mm. Oh yeah, we need it. We need each other. You know, like you might think that you're weak for needing AA, 
but you're really actually giving AA a gift because AA needs you. Yeah. It's like, what can we bring to it rather than what can we take? What can you bring? Exactly. Exactly. I love, you know, sweet Marion used to say, yeah, um, God bless her. You know, yeah, for real. If you don't feel good, go to a meeting. And if you feel good, go to two. Because if you don't feel good, you need a meeting. And when you feel good, the meeting needs you. Man, that's awesome. She was a legend. This is a woman that used to sit she in the front legend, row at right? 562. Yeah. Yeah. It seemed oh, like. Blocked, beautiful. Always well, you know. Like, <laughs> always well dressed. Lady in the house. Yeah, yeah. I think she was in New York City and then came maybe from Philly and then came and lived in the suburbs. And, and, and you know, meetings were her. It was her number one thing. I mean, she was regal and she was cool and she had a kick ass message and she put sobriety first. <laughs> right? Yeah, she did. She did. That was Thanks, awesome, Tammy. Yeah, Appreciate thank you so much. Work. Yeah, you got you too. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Thanks so much for listening to The Payoff with Pete. Once again, I'm Pete Souza, And of course, we are part of the Rogue Media Network. All kinds of good podcasts you can find at roguemedianetwork.com. And of course, you can find this podcast and all those other ones wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, other spots like that. This has been a Rogue Media Podcast.